From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The March of Dimes recently awarded a Syracuse University chemistry professor a grant to help pay for his research into Prader-Willi syndrome. It's a rare genetic disorder. Here to talk about this disease and his research is Dr. James Hauglin, an associate professor of chemistry at SU. Welcome, Dr. Hauglin. Well, thank Thanks you for, for the chance here. to come talk about our work. So please tell us a little about this genetic disorder. So Prader-Willi syndrome is a genetic disorder that affects uh, somewhere between 10,000 and 25,000 children in the the, uh, population is considered an orphan disease, um, where there's been a change in how some of the genes are expressed off of the child's chromosomes. This uh, genetic syndrome has a number of different effects um, that are read out as the children. Early on in development, they they exhibit what's called failure to thrive, so they don't eat well, they don't gain uh, weight. Then as they mature into children and adults, you see some issues with muscle tone. Um, Also, they do tend to exhibit a symptom called hyperphagia, or insatiable appetite, where children with Prader-Willi syndrome will eat, they, we all know that feeling you can have after Thanksgiving dinner where you're completely full. A Prader-Willi child can have, can eat enough so they are completely full of food, yet will still have hunger. Uh, One of the children that I met at a conference described it as, imagine when you have that itch right in the middle of your back you can't get to, Mm -hmm. imagine that's hunger and it's there all the time. Um, And so when people have been studying sort of the uh, biomedical, background below that, that underlies Prader-Willi syndrome itself, one of the things they found was that Prader-Willi patients have an aberrantly high level of a hormone called ghrelin in their bloodstream. Um, that's one of the systems we work on in the laboratory. And as I learned that about the patients with Prader-Willi, that's sort of what our, led our, our research toward that, toward looking at the basic biochemical um, foundations that might underlie some of the aspects of the disease. So ghrelin is known as the hunger hormone. It is, it okay. is. It was discovered back in 1999 and it was most well known, as, as you said, as a hunger hormone. So ghrelin effectively is how your stomach tells your brain to eat. As we're sitting here, uh, hopefully we both had a well-balanced breakfast. Um, but as we get on toward lunchtime, uh, there's an area of cells in the top of our stomach that will start secreting more and more and more ghrelin into our bloodstream. It'll transmit through the bloodstream up to our brains and effectively activate the hunger response. Then when we eat our lunch, uh, that leads to a drop in ghrelin secretion. Effectively, the stomach senses it's full and your ghrelin levels will drop down. And so the ghrelin levels in your bloodstream will cycle through the day and that's what leads to effectively hunger. Um, so, but a person with the Prader-Willi syndrome would have this feeling? They have it all the time. Their, their level, the levels of ghrelin in their bloodstream are much higher than uh, a patient without Prader-Willi. They've done okay. a number of studies where they'll take uh, children with Prader-Willi syndrome and compare them to their siblings who don't have the syndrome, and they see that the ghrelin levels are much higher. Now, there's been a lot of discussion in the field of whether the high ghrelin is a cause of the symptom or a response to something else. And one of the things we're looking at with our work is to develop tools that we can hand off to the physicians and the endocrinologists so they can try to figure out, is ghrelin leading the charge or is it a response? to what's going on. And we don't really know at this point. Now, one thing, you, you called it an orphan disease, and I yes. just want to be clear, it, it doesn't affect orphans. No. Um, so calling something an orphan disease, there's a classification, um, the one I'm most, well, uh, I, I'm most familiar with is by the National Institutes of Health. An orphan disease refers to a disease 
uh, primarily in the American population per the definition, that has a relatively small penetration into the population. So these are going to be diseases that don't affect a huge part of the population. And probably don't get a lot of attention exactly. funding-wise or exactly. research-wise. Um, and there's been some moves at the federal level historically, for example, when if you develop a treatment for that could treat an orphan disease, when you go into clinical trials, you actually can do a smaller patient population if you're targeting an orphan disease, reflective of the fact that it's harder to get those patients together for the trial. Okay, great. Well, how did you get involved in this? Because you're... A chemist, right? Yeah, by training, so. I'm, orga I'm an organic chemist and biochemist. When I started up my laboratory at Syracuse, broadly speaking, my research program focuses on understanding modifications that are performed on proteins in our body and then how those chemical modifications read out and change biological function. We became interested in ghrelin very early on my time at Syracuse, specifically because in order to become active, be able to, be able to activate the hunger signal, ghrelin needs a unique chemical modification. There's one amino acid in ghrelin, which is about 28 amino acids long. It's a relatively small hormone, um, where it's modified with an eight-carbon fatty acid uh, with, called octanoate. Uh, what's interesting is at the time we started studying this back in 2010, it was the only known example of this modification. And as of about a week ago when I checked again, it's still the only known example. Hmm. And it's very rare to see something unique in biology and biochemistry, so we got interested in studying the chemistry of how that modification is performed, also with an eye to not just the fundamental chemistry of what's going on, which is kind of what I'm interested in, but also because ghrelin needs that fatty acid attached to activate the hunger signal, if we can understand how that modification is performed and figure out ways to block it, that would give you a chemical or a, um, a drug-based way, possibly, of blocking the ghrelin signal. So there's uh, sort of a, a breadth of interest areas all the way from the fundamental chemistry all the way to, to things that uh, topics that could develop into hopefully therapeutics treating disorders like in Prader-Willi syndrome or possibly diabetes or obesity that seem to have linkages to ghrelin signaling. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, beyond the, this disease, mm -hmm. um, just overeating, uh, obesity. Right. We... I, I always joke with my research group as we've been studying this area, and not surprisingly, we have to do a lot of reading into the endocrinology literature to sort of understand what's known about ground signaling and where, where the needs are in terms of developing molecular tools. And the more I read endocrinology, the more I really respect endocrinologists <laughs> because they do... In terms of insulin signaling or ghrelin or leptin, a number of hormones that regulate how our bodies sense and use and regulate energy... They, they've done amazing work, but their molecular tools are still, they're, they're at a relatively low level of complexity compared to what I'm used to as an as a organic chemist. And so I see part of our uh, work, along with understanding the biochemistry of the system, the tools we develop in my laboratory, we can hand off to those more medically oriented scientists and give them a more precise way, particularly with ghrelin, to change its signaling and that will help us figure out how ghrelin is playing a role in all these different processes within the body. Very interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with James Hauglin, an associate professor of chemistry at Syracuse University. Now, um, ghrelin, the hunger hormone that tells our has our stomach telling our brain when it's time to eat, does it also tell us what to eat or what we're craving? Or it can. Have... There's, some, there's some data that suggests that high ghrelin levels lead to what's called hedonistic eating. Uh, the, the example I always use when I give a seminar 
is that particularly when I'm talking to other scientists, I will ask the room, okay, how many of us at some point in our work or education lifetime have pulled an all-nighter? Most people have. <laughs> um, and when you think about when you're up really, really late and you get the munchies, right, that's your ghrelin spiking in response to the stress of sleep deprivation. But also when you get the munchies, with rare exception, you don't tend to want to favor a well-balanced salad and like a whole grain muffin. You right. want pizza or mac and cheese, um, high calorie, what we think of as comfort foods. Again, that would be what we call hedonistic eating. It makes you want to eat um, uh, foods that are high in calorie, maybe not what we consider overall the healthiest thing for you, but that's really what it drives toward. Hmm. Um, there's also some data that's been coming out in the last few years suggesting that ghrelin in its role with sort of motivating you to eat sort of the, the food reward system, ghrelin levels may also affect other types of addictive behavior. There's some, I've seen some studies that link ghrelin signaling possibly to alcoholism. Sort of any sort of what, uh, or addictive behavior where high ghrelin can affect your response to a stimuli like that. Hmm. Now, we're actually, we're interested in, we've started talking with some people I've met at conferences, and these conferences are great for ghrelin because you have people from all over the spectrum, from where I'm sitting at the heart, you know, chemistry, biochemistry, very molecular level, all the way up to, uh, you know, endocrinologists, medical scientists, even to people who are involved in lifestyle modification, so counselors involved in addiction therapy. And the idea if we can understand how ghrelin signaling is coupled into all these different behaviors, not just, you know, can you develop a, a pill to solve things, which very rarely actually works in, in reality, but can we understand how those signaling pathways work and then mesh all the way from the molecular treatment to the lifestyle treatment to achieve the outcome we want for the patient? Wow. Do you have hope that that's going to happen? I, ho I hope so. I think that my understanding of, of, how we, we understand how a lot of these hormones are cycling in the body, and, and that comes from the tool to be able to measure them in the bloodstream. The sort of the, the my sense is the biggest challenge has been currently being able to sort of deconvolute. So, so pull apart, you know, insulin signaling from ghrelin signaling from other hormones that are involved in our response to these stimuli. And part of that is developing tools that then you can say, okay, well, if I have a change, say, in ghrelin, is that mirrored or is it amplified or offset by a change in another one of the hormones? So basically be able to pull apart this pile of spaghetti and know what each of them is doing. But I think even in the time I've been involved in the field from when I started here at Syracuse, there's been great advances in this. And I think we're having more and more scientists from, a broad, from broad backgrounds getting involved and that's what we need to sort of address these challenges. So ghrelin works with other hormones? It, it appears to uh, possibly either amplify other hormones or offset other hormones. Uh, for example, insulin, which most of the listeners have heard of, it's involved in regulating our blood glucose. Uh, it's, there, we have, we've seen studies that suggest that high ghrelin levels in our bloodstream reduce the effectiveness of insulin to stimulate glucose uptake. Effectively, it makes insulin not work quite as well. It also can affect your pancreas with how much insulin secretes relative to a glucose challenge. And so it suggests that high ghrelin makes insulin less effective and vice versa, high insulin may make ghrelin less effective. And so one thing we've looked at, and we have some funding right now from the American Diabetes Association, um, would be to look for ways that we can try to reduce ghrelin signaling in the body. It might provide us a novel pathway to try to help treat type 2 diabetes. Effectively, not you know taking insulin like some patients have to, especially as they get further on in the disease, but if we suppress ghrelin signaling, can we make the insulin your body is making more effective? 
right? But part of the challenge, again, has been knowing, being able to figure out how all these things are talking to each other, and particularly in organisms, whether it's us or rodents or whatever you're studying, it's really, you know, you don't get to play with one of them at a time. You have to sort of take the whole bag right. at the time and figure out how to, how to uh, determine what each of the different hormones are doing. Do, uh, does a test exist now to test a person's ghrelin levels or how well their ghrelin is working? Or? So we do, there are, there are some kits um, that we use in my laboratory. We buy from companies that can use antibody-based detection. Uh, one challenge with ghrelin uh, that we've, we're dealing with right now is that in the bloodstream, as I mentioned, to be active, ghrelin gets that short acid attached to it, that octanoate. Um, it turns out that there are a lot of different enzymes in our bloodstream that are really good at taking that acid back off. And so if you take, say, a blood sample, and we've, done, we've worked with this with both um, with collaborators at the University in Ottawa, Canada, if you take a blood sample from a rodent, for example, all the what we call acylated ghrelin, the ghrelin that has the fatty acid on it, it hydrolyzes. The fatty acid comes off with a half-life of less than five minutes. Mm. And so the trick to that is getting a good measurement of actually how much of the acylated ghrelin there is. Uh, we've developed some chemical tools that help stabilize that, so it makes it easier to measure that. But we're also looking at collaborators both here at Syracuse and at other institutions to try to develop better ways to study ghrelin in the bloodstream. Because that's one question, especially with ghrelin cycling so quickly in our bodies. You know, as we understand the dynamics of how ghrelin levels go up and down and how they change, that's going to help us understand how the signaling works. Well, your recent work has identified some molecules that can potentially block ghrelin signaling. So yeah, we we just published a paper back in uh, January, where we one of the tricks with studying ghrelin and the enzyme that modifies ghrelin is called ghrelin oacyltransferase or GOAT for short. Uh, no shortage of laughter in the laboratory <laughs> about that. What we one of the challenges has been that we don't have any drug like molecules that actually block ghrelin isolation, and so it's been sort of a catch twenty two situation that we can't inhibit ghrelin because we have no molecules, but we didn't have any. We started using some of the some of the uh, tests we have in the laboratory to just screen libraries of compounds from the National Institute of Health, effectively throwing things against a wall and seeing if anything stuck. And through this work that was done by a good number of undergraduates in my lab, they found that one of these molecules, it's uh, called a synthetic triterpenoid. Effectively, it's a something that looks like a steroid, but a little bit bigger, um, where that molecule effectively blocked the activity of GOAT. It blocked GOAT's ability to acylate ghrelin. Hmm. Working on that molecule, we then worked with... Um, John Chisholm, my synthetic collaborator at Syracuse University, to effectively pare that molecule down and figure out exactly what parts of it are important. And those studies both helped us find new molecules that additionally block ghrelin modification, but they also helped teach us things about how GOAT is modifying ghrelin itself. And as we learned how the enzyme works, that makes it easier to develop new inhibitors. Well, very exciting. Thank you so much for talking about this. My guest has been Dr. James Hauglin, an associate professor of chemistry at Syracuse University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.